Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to Run Out Radio. I'm Jerry Forsyth, and I'm joined, of course, by Mike Howerton in Phoenix. Mike, how are you, buddy? Doing good. Getting warm out here. I bet it is. And we need to remind everybody that we are brought to you by our sponsors, of course, OBQs and Tiger Products and Border Billiards and Predator Cues. Please support our advertisers. Mike, we've got some great guests that we'll talk about a little bit later, but right now let's get right into the news because there's been a lot going on lately. Yeah, there has. Um, last week there were seemed like there were top events everywhere, but before we get into that, I would like to mention two weeks ago, we didn't mention it on our, on our last show, the 17th annual Four Bears 8-Ball Classic, uh, March 28th through 30th at the Four Bears Casino and Lodge in Newtown, North Dakota. Now, since I mentioned North Dakota, I'll give you a guess why I'm bringing up this event. Mm. Might be a Van Boning in here somewhere. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> somewhere. Uh, men's and a women's division. So as if it wasn't bad enough for the field that Shane Van Boning shows up, and let's give credit where credit is due, uh, Dave Gomez from Colorado did send Shane to the one-loss side, but uh-huh. people have sent Shane to the one-loss side before and not won tournaments, and that's exactly what happened here. Shane came through the one-loss side, defeated Dave in the finals. Now, that in itself, yeah, you know, we talk about Shane winning tournaments here and there, $4,000. Okay, that's that's a good weekend for him. The story here is the women's division. Shane can't play in the women's division, but his mom can. <laughs> and, of course, his mom is a former BCA national champion. And she is also now a 17th annual Four Bears 8-Ball Classic champion. Um <laughs> She she made sure that she did it just like Shane. Uh, Bonnie Plowman from Colorado sent Shane's mom. Her name is Timmy Bloomberg. Uh, Bonnie sent Timmy to the one-loss side, and like son, like mom, Timmy came through the one-loss side, defeated Bonnie in the finals. So Shane and mom were first place in the men's and the women's division. There, you got you couldn't pick a better story than that. No, it just keeps getting better and better with Shane and his whole family. What else you got? Well, we move on to last weekend. Lots of interesting stories. Um, I I think the biggest one had to be the Amway World Women's Championship. Uh, This is the Mm -hmm. big one. Everybody, every top female player was there with the exception of Karen Kaur and Shouting Pan. Shouting had visa issues. It's really a shame because she won the event last year. She was not able to play in it. Everybody else that you would expect to be there was there. Jeanette Allison, Guy Young, Jasmine, uh, Shin Mei Lu, Jennifer Chen, all the monsters were there. And a player that I don't know much about, um, her name is Yang Chun Lin. Now, she played a couple years ago when you were the press officer out there, didn't she? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. She uh, she made it through the group stages undefeated, and there were, I believe, four other players that made it through the group stages undefeated, and they were all from Taipei. So, mm-hmm. again, you know, we have to touch on how Taipei seems to be uh, flexing their muscle at the, at the top level of the game. Uh, so beyond going through her group stage undefeated, 
she ends the tournament with three wins over Jeanette, Allison Fisher, and Ga Young Kim in the finals. Ooh, how strong is that? Yeah, I don't care who you are. If you beat those three players in the finals, you deserve to win a world championship. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the match with Allison went hill-hill, and strangely enough, Allison missed a nine ball when she was on the hill, and then Lynn made that nine ball to tie it at 8-8. But Allison had the opportunity to win the match right there, and we could have had an allison Guy young final. Allison doesn't miss a whole lot of nine balls when she's on the hill. Must have been a tough shot. Of course. Um, we move over to the men's side. The men were playing on the Guinness nine ball tour. And again, the players from Taipei dominated there. Um, we mentioned last show that Dennis Orcolo was on a, a hot streak, and his right. hot streak came to an end. He uh, he didn't even make the final eight in the Guinness event. Uh, Joven Bustamante and Gabika both made the final eight, but they were eliminated right away. Just like the women's championship, the final four players in the Guinness Nine Ball Tour were all from Taipei. Wow, that makes a real statement. Yeah, uh, Wu, Yang, Chang, and Wang. And now Hung Shang Wang is the number one ranked player in Taipei. And of those four players, he's probably the one that we've heard the least from. He right. ends up playing Jung Ling Chang in the finals. Chang is the one who dominated the tour last year, won the first event this year. And sure enough, Chang won the second event by, be, by defeating Wang in the finals. Uh, Chang commented after the tournament uh they asked him you know why he does so well in these events and he said you just have to you have to relax you have to not get stressed over it he says i've been there before and and i don't stress over it it was it's it's quite an interesting story how he has dominated this tour i mean yang dominated it the beginning of last year and then mm -hmm. chang took over and he's won the first two events this year uh, he's played in two events he's won thirty thousand dollars in prize money boys doing well yeah uh the canadian nine ball tour was in action yep. uh, big field again as usual uh, all the top players from canada well all the top players except for one uh john mora was a no-show at the event he led the points list going into the event and he doesn't lead it anymore well uh, i know they've had a lot of bad weather um i talked to jim white the tour director up there and every every time i talk to him he's he's shoveling out his driveway again. So that could have been a weather-related issue because, um, I tell you, <laughs> Canada has some weather that you don't want to get near. That's that, that white stuff that falls from the sky in some parts of the country, right? In great abundance. Huh. See, I, I'm not familiar with that whole concept. More of it fell there yesterday. Wow. So it's, uh, they, they have not seen any sign of spring as yet. Yeah, well, um, the final two players, well, the match for the hot seat came down to Elaine Martel and Edwin Montal. Uh, coincidentally, those players teamed up to represent Canada in the World Cup of Pool, that matchroom event, last year. So they were both pretty familiar with each other's games. Uh, yeah. Martel won the hot seat. Uh, Montal went to the one-loss side, came out of the one-loss side, and Martel beat him again in the finals. But... Don't feel too bad for Edwin Montal. He took over the number one spot on the points list uh, from John Morris. So they both, both players ended up with a pretty good weekend. Montal is just solid as a rock. Anytime you look at that Canadian nine ball tour, he is haunting that first place slot. 
Yep, and it's it's shown in him taking over number one spot on the points list. Uh, Seminole Pro Tour uh, was outside of Florida. They were at Mr. Q's 2 in Atlanta. Now, you were at that event, Jerry. Can you tell us about it? Yeah. Uh, i tell you, there are a lot of things the Seminoles are doing that I like. For one thing, they're playing 10 ball. And the fans like it, and the players like it. And uh, this was a neat event. It uh, moved very, very quickly. Uh, the uh, worry that we had that 10 ball would stretch out the races really hasn't come to pass. These guys are, are plowing through these racks really well, and they have really adjusted uh, their games to 10 ball. Um, it doesn't give them near the problems. Uh, that I thought an extra ball on the table might do. Um, the break is, most of the time, a real slammer of a break, and they're opening the balls up, they're making balls on the break, and then they're they're continuing their run. So uh, it's an exciting game. Now, this was a really great tournament, except the final match um, was a bit of a bore. And that's because Corey Duell um, discovered that he could play a soft break even on 10 ball. Oh, jeez. And what he was trying to do was send the one ball into the side pocket and the cue ball behind the rack. Because on the Seminole Tour, you have to put the two and the three ball in the corner positions at the back of the rack. So given that you make the one ball in the side, if you can send the cue ball behind the rack, you're going to be assured of a shot on the two ball. Now, to Corey's credit, that's very smart. Yeah, you can't blame him. Yeah, he took a look at the rack, he figured out how to manipulate it, and he did. I mean, he was doing what he needed to do to win. It was awful. <laughs> it was it was two guys playing straight pull. It got his opponent <laughs> so flustered, Larry Neville. Neville was leading this thing, I think, uh, four to one at one point. And Corey started coming with these soft breaks, and he wasn't making the one in the side. But the one was winding up near the side pocket, the cue ball behind the rack, so Larry was having to kick at the one ball every rack. And he got so frustrated that all he wanted was out of there. Um, finally, uh, Corey playing this straight pool version of 10 ball. He was hitting the, the balls so softly that they had two people there, two officials there, to count the balls off the break to see if he was he could drive four balls to a rail. Hmm. And he was just barely doing that. One time he did not, but he scratched on the break at the same time, so it would have been a foul anyway. But <clears throat> um, it did win him the match and the tournament. So you can't blame... Corey for doing what he did, but you have to say that it's absolutely zero fun to watch him do it. Yeah. Uh, Let me just say one more thing. Okay. Neville got so frustrated 
that when Corey got to the hill, and Neville at this point was only two racks behind. You know, Neville can break and run three, four, five racks of ten ball just about any old time. Sure. So it's not like he had an insurmountable problem. He was two racks behind. Corey had him tied up on the two ball. He tried to hit the two ball. He didn't hit the two ball. He scooped the rest of the rack and forfeited the rack and the match and the championship just to get out of there. Well, like you say, I mean, you can't blame Corey if there's anybody in the men's pro scene who will figure out how to manipulate a rack on the break. It's Corey. Um, While you can't blame him, he's certainly not doing anything to help the men's game. And, I mean, let's let's look at the event to begin with. There were 48 players, and the Seminole Tribe is adding $8,000. I've seen Viking tour stops that drew more players than that. And and I don't understand that. I mean, we talked to Kevin Picard from the Seminole Tribe last year, and they look to be in this for the right reasons. I mean, this is not... This is not a, a hotel chain that is running a tour and wanting everyone to stay at the hotel so they can make their money back. This is just the Seminole Tribe saying, hey, we love the game of pool, and we want to put some money towards it to help grow a tour. And they got 48 players for an $8,000 added event? Nobody knew about it. Well, There was no publicity. I didn't know about it until... Two days before I went, when you called me and said, hey, there's a tournament in your backyard. And I keep up with with tournaments, right? But I didn't know about it. I'm sure there were lots of players who would have played in it, but they didn't know about it. Well, that may be an issue. I mean, you got to do more than just put the added money towards the event. Um, you got to promote it. Yep. Uh, Well... Briefly, let's move over to the women's uh, regional tour scene. I I thought it was an interesting story, the Great Lakes Tour. Uh, Iris Renola from the Philippines. I'm not real familiar with this player, but she came over and won the qualifier. So there's another international player who is coming over to the States to qualify for the WPBA. Uh, I mean, while the men's scene looks to be shifting overseas at least the women are coming from overseas over here because we have an established tour now on the other hand some of the regional tours are struggling a bit um i know there was one tour over the weekend that has always drawn of a good-sized field they drew just over 20 players Another tour drew 10 players to a WPBA qualifier, and I don't know why that is. I don't either, unless um, players think that the competition is going to be too tough and they don't want to donate. I don't, I mean, I'm just fantasizing here. I can't imagine why a qualifier would draw a smaller number of players than a non qualifier. Yeah. Um... I mean, I know that some of the tours, some of the the regional tours are not holding as many qualifiers. They're holding the same number of events, but they're not holding as many of them as qualifiers. But that's because the room has to come with that $500 entry that goes to the winner of the qualifier. And let's face it, things are tough all over. I mean, rooms can't afford just to throw an extra 500 out of the kindness of their heart. 
No, and the whole reason that rooms allow tournaments in their room is because they bring a lot of people who eat their food and drink their drinks. Now, if you're only getting 10 and 20 players, that's going to discourage rooms from having tournaments. Yeah, and it's interesting that you bring up you know, the players coming in and the money that the room expects to make from from beverage and from food. I mean, I've been at tournaments where the players come in, they bring a bottle of water in with them, they ask if they've got an hour and a half before their next match so they can run down the street to get something to eat. Uh, you know, the players need to remember that these rooms are not donating just out of the kindness of their heart. These rooms are trying to make a buck, too, and... Right. When the rooms all disappear because they can't afford to stay open, then the players aren't going to have anywhere to play. You know, I really do agree with you on that. I see it happen all the time. Somebody comes up um, to me or someone else as a tournament director and says, uh, how much time do I have for my next match when I run down the street and get something to eat? And I always say, you leave the room at your own risk. If I call your match and you're not here, you're dead. You can eat right here. Yeah. You know, they got it's their food there. Players come in and drink bottled water, and, and they complain if they have to pay for a bottle of water. I mean, they would rather just drink cups, you know, glasses of water. And I understand the top players don't necessarily drink alcohol during their matches. I mean, the, I understand that completely. But you have to figure that if it's a $50 entry tournament, you know, whatever your Calcutta money and all that is, there's got to also be some money left over that goes back into the till at that room to thank that room for putting that added money into it. Absolutely. And I wish this surprised me, but it doesn't because I was present at all those camel tour events when the players would come out and lay a pack of Marlboros on the, on the table. We've, we've seen sponsors get kicked in the teeth for years and years. Yeah, um, you know, the players complain that there's not enough money in the game and they're not getting paid what they're worth, but there's very few of them that actually take care of those sponsors who are putting that in their mind little amount of money into the game that is being put into the game. And maybe if those sponsors were better taken care of, then they would be willing to put more money towards it. Um I had a conversation with a good friend of mine years ago when we were talking about top players and their sponsorships, and he said a top player, when you are sponsored by a company, uh, perfect example, John Schmidt, uh, our friends over at, over at OB. Yeah. We were at Valley Forge for four days. I cannot count on one hand the number of times I walked by the OB booth and John wasn't there hitting balls right. with fans, making sure that people understood, you know, that, that the, the shafts are fantastic. Take a look at the cues. John is taking care of his sponsor, and that's what the players need to do. Right. Yeah, he's a very good role model for them. Yeah. And you just don't see that a whole lot. I mean, there were some other players there. Chanel Lorraine was there at the Predator booth, and, and boy, she drew a crowd. Um you know, there were some players there who took care of their sponsors, but you just don't see it enough. And and then the players complain about company X and company Y saying, well, you know, you're not putting any money into the game. Look at all the money you're making. Well, 
if they saw a player who was really going out of the way, I mean, Rodney Morris. I mean, we know that Rodney is, is doing his thing with the, the, the drink and, and all that, and, and he probably wouldn't be doing that were he to have a sponsor that was helping him cover the costs and there was prize money in the game. Rodney's a great player to watch. I mean, any company should be proud to have Rodney wearing their logo I mean, he makes TV matches, well, what few TV matches there are, but he's invited to the matchroom events. He gets television exposure for in the matches that he plays on TV, but Rodney doesn't have a sponsor. And, and don't even get me started on Karen Kaur, you know, the, the player that she is, and she doesn't have a, a sponsor patch on. That's just crazy. But again, you know, the players have to do something to earn that sponsorship besides just make a ball. I agree. Well, we could talk about that all day, and then we would not have time for our guests this week. Yes, it is time we got to our guest, and we have a very special one indeed this week. We've got Pat Fleming, and Pat has just been told that he's going to be inducted into the Billiard Congress Hall of Fame in the Meritorious Service category. First, Pat, congratulations. Thank you very much. It's a real honor. I'm, I'm very curious. Does this make the uh, price of an AccuStat DVD go sky high? <laughs> it might come down. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've had. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, how you got to where you are today. Um, mm-hmm. You started, of course, as a player. That's and correct. I'm thinking. Um, you and the uh, other member to be inducted into the Hall of Fame this year, Alan Hopkins, uh, your careers pretty much paralleled one another. Oh, yes. When we were in our late teens, we had competed in Elizabeth, New Jersey together. Wow. And, uh, Mike, uh, you've you've got uh, some old magazines, I believe, that uh, Pat was connected with. Yeah, I, uh, Pat, I find it interesting that this whole adventure kind of started off as a magazine. Can you talk a little bit about the early days of AccuStats and how you came you know, through that, that phase with the magazine and how you got to where you are today? Oh, absolutely. Um, actually, what, how it started was uh, back in 1981, I finished uh, – third in a world straight pool tournament in New York. Uh, Mike Siegel won. Varner was uh, second. And there was a whole host of great players. And uh, that was my best year. And I think the prize money for my finish was $3,000. So I was always keeping statistics on, uh, on pool anyway, just for myself. In other words, finding out why I left the table when I did so that if I can correct these things, I could stay at the table and maybe win the match. So I was always keeping records of myself for years. And then when I won this $3,000, I went and bought a computer. And then I started programming uh, to store statistics and keep statistics on other people. Uh And um, I did that for about a year. And then um, a friend of mine, Jim Fredericks, uh, was very interested in kind of uh, making a business out of it. And so uh, I quit my job at a Radio Shack Computer Center 
And uh, and I went there really to just learn more programming and about computers because I was with Sears Roebuck for uh, 10 years. But once I started programming, and I remember being on the sales floor, and I'm still programming, <laughs> I got caught too many times. And uh, I decided, well, let me go work for a computer center. And I did. And then Jimmy uh, suggested, why don't you quit this and we'll you know, make a go of it. And so I quit Sears, and we started uh, trying to attract promoters into inviting AccuStats to their tournament. We would hire scorekeepers, and we would keep track of a host of different statistics and then post them on a board, and they could see who did who's the best in, at uh, break shots and kicks and safety play and position play. And it was interesting because Barry Berman was the first guy that let us uh, let us do this. And we would every day have a list on uh, on a board, and there'd be all different categories. And if you were in the event, you would be in every category. Of course, you might be high in one, low in another. So they realized that, hey, wait a minute, you know, I could be good at this part and not good at this part. I need improvement. And so that's how AccuStats really started. It was just statistics only, no magazine, no video, just a service to promoters. And then it was obvious that mm, this isn't a, a money maker. We've got to try and save money because we were losing money fast. And so in an effort to save money, um, AccuStats said, well, look, when we go to a tournament and we hire 18 or 20 scorekeepers because we have to assign one to each table, and then they have to have relief, so we have to have a lot more scorekeepers than tables. And it got to be expensive. And uh, so we said, well, let's buy some cameras and we'll videotape the matches and then we'll just have a couple of scorekeepers reviewing those videotapes in fast forward. And we could probably, instead of having 18, maybe have four or five scorekeepers, and they'll just continually watch these videos and keep the stats. And that's what we did, and we saved a lot of money. Or I should say, we lost less money. <laughs> <laughs> so we were still losing money. Uh, but... We didn't have to be in town three days earlier to train people. We had regular scorekeepers now, and uh, things looked like they were promising, and, and they were improving quite a bit, but they weren't improving enough to make any money. We were still losing money. And we did this for half a dozen tournaments, and then uh, out in uh, Iowa, I think, and, and we erased these tapes you know, because we need the tapes again to record matches so we can keep the stats on them. Sure. And then one tournament, somebody said, do you have that match between Varner and Reyes? And I said, well, when was it? And they said, well, it was yesterday, last night. Remember that great match? I said, oh, yeah, but we taped over it. You know, we just keep stats. And as soon as and he said, I was going to buy it. And so then I said, well, wait a minute, maybe... Maybe there is a way. And so we decided to, uh, oh, I'm sorry, we talked about the magazine. So before the video idea came into play, we would go to tournaments and keep stats 
and then produce this newsletter. And we did this for two years, and it was very popular. We thought we could make money, make a living uh, having a newsletter. And that was popular, but we were losing less money than before. And well, let me, so, let, me, let me stop you. Let me stop you just yeah. for a second, Pat. Right. The very first issue of AccuStats yep. magazine that you had a photo on the cover was issue number two, volume zero, issue number two. Do you remember okay. who was on the cover of your first magazine? I think Danny DiLiberto. Absolutely. It was Danny DiLiberto who later, of course, <laughs> becomes one of your most popular commentators and is still doing a great job for you yeah he won the tournament and you played in that tournament i did and you knocked you knocked out in the very first round a young player earl strickland (laughs) i remember that yeah so for those of you who don't know there was a time when pat fleming did play pool pretty good (laughs) yeah so, right. so we did publish this newsletter for, for two years, and it was very popular, and we thought we had a shot. You know, if we just kept it going, uh, subscription would would uh, continue to increase. And um, Jimmy Fredericks, my f- friend and, and partner at the time, he was uh, he was confident with me, or at least had the belief that, you know, this could work. But... Uh, you know, we're still losing money. And that's when someone said, you know, did you see that, you know, do you have that uh, Varner-Reyes match? And I said, well, we erased it because we're keeping stats. And uh, that then a light went off and said, well, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't erase all of these. Maybe we should keep the best matches. And and so when we did, uh, you know, we, we had some sales and we said, well, maybe that'll work. And uh, I remember we were committed to a U.S. Open, and we were going to keep stats there. And uh, Barry was paying for it, and we just did a tournament in uh, New uh, New England somewhere, and people were buying these things like hotcakes. There was no commentary, one camera, uh, you know, boring as hell compared mm-hmm. to today. But they were selling like hotcakes because nobody else was offering this. And so then I called Barry up and I begged him, please let me out of this deal of keeping the stats <laughs> at your tournament because I'd have to train people and I'd have to lose more money. And I said, just let me set up the cameras and we'll videotape. And that was kind of the beginning of of AccuStats video and the end of uh, the magazine because we weren't going to keep stats on complete tournaments, which is what we did. You still keep the stats, however, today on your AccuStat videos. Absolutely. But we keep stats in the same way, except we don't display or record them the same way. For instance, the uh, the most popular number that most people know about is called the total performance average. Right. And it's like a batting average in baseball. And once you know a number and you've seen enough of them, you know what's good and what isn't good. So for a, a top-flight pro, a 900 or higher is 
is great pool. And, uh, you know, under 800 would be poor pool for a pro. But, right. you know, as an amateur, an 800 is great, you know, and, and, a, and a, a 500 might be poor. But the nice thing about it, of course, is that anybody can keep score of their match and they can compare themselves with anybody with these numbers. And we used to keep track of um, rankings in all the categories, but now we don't because we don't keep stats on all the matches. So we just show the total performance average for that particular match on uh, on our videos, which is enlightening. Yeah. Pat, was it you or was it Jim who developed the total performance average system that you guys use? Oh, it was me. Um, years before that, years, years before that, when I was playing straight pool in the pool room that we both went to, we designed this, uh, well, I would keep records, and I w it was basically for straight pool because we were straight pool players. And then uh, he had some uh, cards printed up to my design about how we would like this score keep scorekeeping done. And uh but it was my brainchild all along and um he was a great supporter. Well, most of the fans who are familiar with AccuStats, as you had mentioned, are are familiar with the concept that a nine hundred or greater is really pro speed. How many times have you taped matches and had a perfect match? Well, from one player. Uh, we've had, I think, one race to 11. We've had a couple of races to nine. And maybe three or four races to seven. Obviously, there'd be a lot of them if there was only races to three. Because <laughs> a lot of players are shooting a 1,000 for many racks. I remember one instant, Dennis Hatch... Uh, was shooting a thousand into ten racks, and then the last rack he did something, scratched on a break or something. Uh, so the longer the race, of course, the more difficult it is to maintain that thousand. But we, I think, we only got one race to eleven, and uh, I think it was no, that was race to nine. We've had, I'm not even sure if we have a race to eleven, maybe nine. And speaking of stats, um, Jerry and I on this show talk a lot about the game of nine ball and ten ball and and what can be done to help the game and, and why the game has not grown and succeeded at the rate that a lot of people would like to see. And there are some people who conjecture that there isn't a universal statistics system for the game of pool. Uh, you know, you can't open up your Saturday paper or open up a magazine or whatever for major events and see the stats. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it is true that if there were universal stats, uh, it probably, I'm sure it would be a lot better for the billiards industry. The problem that we have is that AccuStats, for instance, is a very reliable and accurate, and it could be even better, but there's only so far you want to go before people will keep score differently, you know, different opinions. You want to keep your, uh, keep opinions out of it. Everything should be straightforward. So if you've got a lot of different people keeping score all over the country, 
you want to make sure that there's rules that they have to abide by when they keep the score. The problem with AccuStats, and this has been its problem forever, is that it is very difficult. It is so difficult that uh, there's just a handful of people on the staff that can be trusted doing it. Uh, if uh, a spectator without the skills were doing it, they they would get the they would get it wrong. So the masses definitely cannot keep AccuStat scores. When we used to train people, if we we get 25 people, we might only be able to keep half of them because the other half just could not grasp it. Is there a simplified version where a person who wanted to keep stats yes. on themselves yes, could learn? Yes, absolutely. Now, there are simplified versions. The problem with simplified versions is they become less accurate. They become less accurate in the short term. In the long term, they could be pretty accurate, like the APA and the uh, USPPA. They have their systems. The problem with, uh, I shouldn't say a problem, the difference between AccuStats and theirs is AccuStats system is very accurate and gives a good reading for the set that they just played. And of course, in the long run, even more accurate. But their systems are very accurate for the long term, but for the one set, it, it, it just doesn't give an accurate reading. Okay. Somebody has to invent one in the middle. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so you went from keeping statistics in an attempt to to better your game to the magazine to selling videotapes and then I know that it was a big change for you to go from from VHS to DVD. What's next for AccuStats and Pat Fleming? I mean, what what do you see as the next logical step? Um well, possibly uh, specialty matches, challenge matches, uh, unique matches uh, with unique rules, uh, instructionals, um, the Internet, of course, um, and whatever new medium comes along, you know, we'll try to adapt to it. Uh, but what we do have is is cherished by us because our videos go back 20 years and any of them can be uh, upgraded to DVD, added commentary, uh, not to fool the public and think that this was the commentary at that time, but in retrospect, here's a match from 1986. It was between so-and-so and so-and-so. -and -so. Look how young so-and-so was and then go on from there. Uh, so our inventory of over a thousand videos is is still valuable to me, despite you know most of it, unfortunately, is VHS, but a lot of it is being converted to DVD, and whatever comes along, I'm sure we could convert to that, yeah. and uh, and the internet, I know, is going to be a big factor. Well, I think that uh, I think that library of videos is valuable to more than just you. I mean pool fans all across the world have pretty much accepted AccuStats as the standard as far as as watching video from tournaments and um, definitely 
taken a, a place in the history of billiards with with the project, and I think it's interesting the way it got started and where it is today. And if, if I can say, the, the fact that Pat Fleming has now provided us with an entire generation of pool players where in the future we don't have to wonder how they played. We can look at his videos and know how they played. We talk about Ralph Greenleaf now, but we don't really know how he played because there's not enough film footage of it. And most of the footage was stuff that was kind of dummied up. So, I mean, it's just a tremendous service to the sport, this library that, that you put together, Pat. Well, the growth of that, you know, was, uh, like I say, it started with one camera, a consumer camera, no less, with no commentary. Um, the best I could say about it, that it was at least color. <laughs> it wasn't black and white. <laughs> Um, but then after a while of doing that, then Bill and Cardona, uh, suggested, uh, you know, why don't we put commentary on this stuff? You know, you got these great matches and they they were selling even with no commentary. Uh, but he suggested doing commentary and I said, well, I don't know. He said, well, let's try it the next tournament. I said, okay, well, we'll try it the next week. We're in, um, we were in, uh, Arizona. And uh, we did it, and oh my God, what a difference! Because, and he was as excited as could be after he did it. He and Bobby Hunter were the first ones to do any commentary for Accustats. It was an experiment. It was in the middle of a match that they started it. In other words, this was off the cuff. Hey, let's do this match. Look what the score is. Let's try it. Let's just see what it's like. And right in the middle of the match. They're on the rail about seven feet from the pool table. There's no booth. <laughs> and they're doing commentary like they were pros. And it was very exciting. And that changed AccuStats uh, tremendously because from that point on, it was never again we were going to have a video without commentary. And uh, then, but then again, it was one camera but with commentary. So that was a great stride. And we spent a year or so doing that stuff. And then I had a friend, Rick Boley, who was helping me in whatever way he could. And he said, well, why don't you add another camera? I'll, I'll be a cameraman. Now, he never took pictures of anything. And I said, well, I don't know. He says, come on, what's the matter? Let's get another camera. We'll set up a, an overhead and we'll, we'll now the other camera, which I'll have, he said, you know, can follow the player around and get a different view, and it'll look really nice. I don't know. Okay, we'll try it. Of course, we tried that, and that was right, too. So I had nothing to do with those two decisions other than say, well, okay, we'll try it. And then uh, after that, um, Julian Robertson came on board, and he was helping. He took the place of Rick Boley, and he suggested these other cameras on the side, and I'm saying, ah, I don't know. And sure enough, we ended up with extra cameras and then a truss and lighting, and it just grew from there. And uh, I hardly had anything to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, Pat, this this has been great. We, we're going to have to get on. We've got one more guest we've got to uh, visit with right. today, but we sure do appreciate your time. And congratulations. I uh, can't think of anyone who deserves this honor any more than thee. And I'll look forward to seeing you at the ceremony. Okay, and just one last word. I do want to 
also say that uh, Rob Sikora played an important role in AccuStats. He put us on television, and you know, lots of people, millions of people have seen us on TV. And Barry Berman and Greg Sullivan have been supportive of AccuStats for many, many years. So thank you and everybody else. Thanks for that. And uh, like I said, we will see you uh, at the BCA trade show where the induction will take place. Hope a lot of our listeners will join us there. Can't wait. Okay, take care, Jerry and Mike. Okay, hey, Pat, thanks very much, buddy. Well, Mike, that was great talking to Pat Fleming. Of course, he's going in uh, to the Hall of Fame under the meritorious service category, as we said. Going in this year as the great player is Alan Hopkins, and we can't think of anyone who deserves that more. And right now, Alan joins us from his home. Hello, Alan. How you doing, buddy? Hi, Jerry. How you doing? All right? I'm doing fine. Can't, can't complain. Can't complain. <laughs> Alan, I've expected you to go in the Hall of Fame for the last, I know, five years, and they've always snuck someone in ahead of you. It must, have, it must seem to have been a, a rather long wait. <laughs> well, you know, some there's an old saying, better late than never. Well, it has happened, and wow, what a career you've had as a player. And, and it's so great, you know, we talked about this earlier uh, off air, that uh, you're being recognized as a player as you should be. Uh, there was a danger that someone would vote you in first under the meritorious service as a promoter. Well, that was that was the concern I had. Uh, because, you know, I've been promoting so much in the last 10 years um, and basically letting my wife go play because she likes to go play on the women's tour. Uh, so basically I just stayed home with my child and stuff. But uh, I'm glad I get in there as a player because uh, I believe that's – well, I know that's where I'm supposed to be as a player in there. Um, all the players that are in there I've played with, you know, I've beaten every one of them. They've beaten me too, of course. Uh, I've won the same tournaments they've won. I did basically the same things they've done, uh, and even a few extra things. So um, it's uh, it feels great to get in there. I'll tell you the truth. I mean, I've been playing pool for 50 years, <laughs> and very well. Yeah, and 50 years. You know, you know, when you started uh, playing professionally, uh, there were several <laughs> games that were played. One of them, of course, was straight pool, a game at which you excelled. Uh, Straight pool is now very popular in Europe and other parts of the world, but it's sort of waned here in the United States. Do you think there'll ever be room for it to uh, come back to its former popularity? I don't know if it will ever become the the game of the of the sport because um, you take a person off the street to come in and watch a pool tournament. If you brought them into a straight pool tournament and you sat there and they watched people run 60, 70, 100 balls without ever shooting a difficult shot, they can't relate to how well that person is playing. Uh, you take them in and you bring them to a nine-ball tournament or a ten-ball tournament where they're, they can follow the game. They know the person shooting the one ball and has to get on the two-ball next and three-ball, four-ball, and so on. And they watch this person get up and run out of rack of balls, and they, and they think, wow, how great that is. Or if a person gets hidden behind a ball and they jump over it or kick at a ball and make another ball, most of the public doesn't realize how lucky that is. Uh, I don't think straight pool will ever uh, make be the thing that this sport actually um, focuses on the most. I think it's going to be a rotation game. Or eight ball. Eight ball is a great game, by the way. 
Now, a lot of people relate to uh, eight ball, you know, high, low, uh, stripes and solids, whatever we want to call it. Uh, a lot of people can relate to eight ball. So eight ball may become, you know, the universal game for our sport. I don't know. But, I mean, straight pool is definitely a true test of the best players. In your long tournament history, is there a one magic moment that will always stand out? Do you have anything, any one tournament win that you treasure above the rest? Well, I would think probably in 1983 winning the World Nine Ball Championship uh, that Bob Mucci put on would probably be uh, one of my moments that I was really uh, thrilled about because everybody was there. Um, and it was 128 players, and it wasn't an invitational. It was open to anybody who wanted to play worldwide, and it was players from all over. Um, I think that's one of the moments. Another tournament that slipped by me, actually, is the World 8-Ball Championship. Uh, I should have won that. Uh, that kind of slipped by me. Um, and all the players were at that one also. Mm-hmm. I ended up finished second in that one. And uh, it was cause we had a TV match, and the TV match was shorter, and a few things, you know, happened. But uh, other than that, uh, my other moments, of course, winning, you know, straight pool title in 1977, and I should have won it in 78, and I let it slip by me. <laughs> As a matter of fact, the night before the finals, I had to play Miserac, and uh, I had to beat him twice. And I beat him two matches back-to-back in four innings. And that was kind of like, you know, I was playing really well. And that night, instead of going and getting some rest, I went and played poker all night. <laughs> and oh, I won more I won more playing poker, and this is, this is the shameful part, but I won more playing in the poker, in the poker uh, game than I would have if I won the tournament the following day. So it was kind of <laughs> <laughs> it was gratifying one way, but I let another I let a world title slip by me. I, I think you know when you're playing world championships and the opportunity is there, uh, it's so important to win it anyway. Well, no matter how much money it is, just go ahead and win it because it's something that stays with you for the rest of your life. You know, and uh, and I've finished. You know, besides winning them, I've also finished second a lot of times, and I think uh, right. a lot of them slipped by me because of that. Um, but, you know, I'm happy. Uh, my career, I mean, I won the Challenge of Champions, which was, you know, something that was important to win also. Uh, it was one of the biggest paydays in pool, uh, even right. though it's a select few players. But at those players, a lot of people don't realize how the Challenge of Champions used to be uh, picked. They were picked from your rankings on the tour. Mm-hmm. Um, and also they had two picks by the promoter. So they would take the top six from the tour, and two picks from the promoter. Like if you won a tournament during the year and he wanted to put you in, like let's say you won the U.S. Open, but you weren't in the top six on the pro tour. So the promoter left the spots open that he could pick two players. Well, at that, that year that I got invited, one, I was ranked fifth for the year, so I got invited to it and, uh, and won that too. So that was kind of – and I wasn't really even playing much then. So it was kind of like uh, – it was kind of neat to win because <laughs> it really was – I was really doing promotion for the um, – the men's pro tour at the time. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, you, a pro pool player, married a pro pool player, the former Don Murin, now, of course, Don Hopkins, and you actually sacrificed quite a lot. You, you rather cut your own career short in order that Don could, could uh, continue hers. That was an awfully generous thing to do there, Alan. Well, Jerry, to tell you the truth, you know, I'd been through this in the 70s uh, with my first wife, Sandy, 
And my first boy, my first son, Alan, I didn't get to spend much time with, to tell you the truth. Um, I was always away and playing pool and stuff. And um, I felt that now was the time that I basically should just stay home and, uh, you know, take care of uh, my son and just spend some time with him and stuff. Right. So, but now, I, you know, to tell you the truth right now, I really wish I didn't do that. I really wish I would have kept playing because I don't know how many more, who knows how many more things I would have won in that 10 years. Um, even though the money wasn't there, it's basically about titles. You know, it's basically picking up titles. So sure. I, I probably should have went and playing because I, I think I'm taking something away from the sport by not playing. Uh, and if I had it to do over again, I would play. I would have went and played. Uh, because it's like, I guess it's like, uh, I'll, I'll mention a, a fellow like Mike Siegel, you know, who stopped playing. Uh, I don't feel that was good for the sport. You know, I feel you should keep playing and play your whole life if you can play. Um, because when you're, when you're in that status of being one of the greatest players, uh, why stop? You know, why not just see how much you can win? You know, just keep on going until you just can't play anymore. That's why I hit my hats off to a fellow like Irving Crane. You know, I have the I had the honor to play all these old time pool players uh, at the time, and Irving Crane is one of the few players that has won world titles in five different decades. Yeah, not too many yeah. players can say that. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, uh, it's been now a few days since you got the phone call that confirmed that you were going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. Has it sunk in yet that your legacy is now set that? <laughs> Long after you're dead and gone, people will be talking about Alan Hopkins, the Hall of Fame player. Well, Jerry, it's funny you mention that. Um, a couple of things. First of all, some people I had talked to, you know, like weren't surprised. They said, well, it's about time, you know, or it's long overdue. But I tried to explain it to my, my son at home here, who's 13. You know, and he, he just, you know, he looked at me like, you know, like, you know, blank face and stuff. And I said, I said, son, that means when daddy's dead and gone, my picture and my name is still going to be in the list of one of the greatest pool players of all time. I right. said, do you realize that? And then his eyes kind of lit up. He says, forever? I says, this is forever. <laughs> this is something <laughs> forever. <laughs> yes, and it's, and it's quite an honor. You know, I mean, it's, uh, it, uh, it's really quite an honor to be uh, amongst the players. That, I mean, I've been playing with these players my whole life, you know, and I think I've probably played uh, most of them in the finals of some tournament somewhere. Uh, and won and lost, so it's, you know, it's, I'm going right up there with the players actually I grew up playing with, basically. You know, a few other players I did not get to play, you know, uh, I, but hey, it's it's a great honor, believe me, and it's, uh, it's something I'm looking forward to and very happy about. It makes the, it kind of like makes my uh, pool playing career like a final now, you know, like I've I've uh, won World, world Nine Ball and uh, won the World Straight Pool and the U.S. Open Nine Ball and and uh, now what, it, what else is there to do except, you know, get it put in the Hall of Fame for doing all these things? So it's really, um, it's really a nice thing. Of all the opponents that you've ever played in all the games, does, are there any two or three that stand out as being the toughest guys you played, the ones that you really didn't like looking across the table and seeing them in the other chair? <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, we've played a lot in the finals, and uh, he is, without a doubt, the toughest opponent, especially in the finals, uh, when you get to the finals, uh, is Mike Siegel. Um, that's without a doubt. Um, now today, in today's era with the game, 
um, it's a different type of game now. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of, um, I would say, better players. I would say they're better because they've learned more about the game. Uh, they've actually learned how to kick at balls. They've learned the diamond system on tables. Um, um, they just learned to play the game better. And believe it or not, the, the format the format of which the game is now with the rotate the break and stuff, much tougher to be a good player, much tougher format. You see, if, if you, when you play winter breaks, you have the opportunity of you're not letting your opponent get a chance, okay? And that's right. not really fair. When you play rotate break and you let a great player get to the table uh, every other rack, that's when it's tough to beat. That's when you have to, when you're tough to beat that opponent. Imagine Tiger Woods playing golf where he might not get a chance to play. They could just shut him out. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And he's the and he's sure. the best golfer. You know, so that's that's what I think today. Today, the you know the format of the game, the players coming up, and also the tours that are going on. There's a lot of tours uh, statewide that are going on that players are playing all the time. So they're improving, and uh, uh, and they're getting used to. Some of them are getting used to winning. In other words, they win on these tours, and when they come in against. Uh, Top players, you know, uh, it's like the Sean Wilkie. You know, Sean Wilkie's never won a major tournament, but yet at the, uh, at, the at the Players' Championship, he was in the finals with uh, Shane Van Boeing, and he had beaten Shane before that. Now Sean right. plays on all the all the tour events around here, you know, uh, and you can see his game improving and getting stronger, you know. So I think it's you know, but in answer to your question, Mike Siegel, I mean, definitely. It was the it was the man you know when, when you were in the finals with him. Uh, I remember one time we were in the finals in Nashville, Nashville, Tennessee. First prize was fifteen thousand. Second prize was ten. And I had just come back from Lake Tahoe, finishing second to Buddy Hall in uh, in Lake right. Tahoe. And uh, and that tournament was even bigger. That was twice as big: thirty-three first prize and twenty for second. But me and Steve now. What, what year was that? <laughs> what year was that? That's a good question, um, boy. I know it's in the 80s, in the 80s, okay. in, low, okay. in low 80s. It would be in the low 80s. It's when, in Lake Tahoe when we played Richie Florence's events. Okay. Right. Okay, go ahead. <clears throat> Me and Buddy were in the finals there, and next week, the following week, we were going to Nashville. Mm-hmm. And the following week, I came in. Um, I was in the finals now with Siegel. Well, I mean, I had Calcutta's back then and stuff, too, and, you know, I happened to have myself and Mike Siegel, half of Mike Siegel in the Calcutta, which was nice, too, uh, which was sweet, actually. But... I mean, me and Mike went out to dinner together, and we talked, you know. And um, I didn't, I didn't drink back then. Um, and Mike was at dinner, and I remember Mike had like two glasses of wine, and and then he had like a <laughs> a shot of uh, Zambuca and coffee or something after we're done. I'm thinking to myself, boy, I said, how's this guy gonna play pool now? Nice. It's gonna be nice, huh? Well, he uh, came out and he shot the lights out. I mean, he like played absolutely perfect because I was playing uh, well at the time also. And he came out and he just never missed the ball and played, like, most perfect pool. But this is something that you'd see him do often. In other words, it wasn't something, you know, that unusual. I mean, <laughs> he was just that type of player. And he he was by far the toughest one to beat, um, you know, in the finals, you know. And then you got Buddy Hall is another one. You know, Buddy Hall is another player, very tough. Now, I'm talking about back in my era playing pool. Right, right. You know, and in today's right. era, of course, there's, you know, players that are, uh, there's a lot of players, you know, that uh, you could look across and say, oh, my God, i got to, I really got to play great to beat this guy, you know. <laughs> but um, no, definitely back then I'd, I'd have to say um, Mike Siegel and uh, Buddy and 
And uh, I'm going to ask a couple of general questions to you, or actually specific questions. Who gave you the nickname Young Hoppy? Steve Miserak. Steve Miserak. Steve Miserak gave me the. um, Yep. He gave me the nickname Young Hoppy. Um, Did did he make a comment about why, or was it a specific tournament or something? Well, first time I had played Steve Miserak, I was 15. And he mm-hmm. was like 19 or 20. He had just come back from winning the Stardust in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And I was just a local kid in Elizabeth, New Jersey, playing pool, but running lots of balls playing straight pool. And we were scheduled to play King of the Hill match, where you win money for winning. And you also, there's a jackpot. If anybody runs 75 balls, they win the jackpot. Well, the jackpot at the time was like $375. It gets bigger every week and nobody does it. So me and Steve Miserak were scheduled to play. And this is the first time I've actually met Steve. So, of course, I'm all psyched up to play him. You know, I heard so much about him, and, of course, he was a great player. Well, Steve breaks the balls, and I come to the table, and I'm running 70 balls, my first shot. And I got a shot where I could take a chance and break the balls, or I could play safe and really have, you know, a strong safe and put Steve in a bind, you know, because now I'm running 70 in a safe. Well, instead of shooting the break shot, I, I, I played safe. And, you know, Steve looked at me like I was crazy. You know, why didn't you try to break open the bullets? So I said, well, you know, I want to win the match. <laughs> I mean, I want to win this match because I wanted to beat him. Mm-hmm. And I played safe, and he tried a safety, and I out-safed him, made another ball, and run another 30-some balls. Well, I had him about 110 to nothing. Okay, then Steve yeah. got up and run like a 40 or 50, and then I ran out, and I beat him, you know. And then we played, after that, we played um, a match, okay, for small money, not a whole bunch, like $50 a game, and he spotted me 100 to 70, you know, because I told him, I said, well, i got to get away. That's just because I beat you in the, you know, in the King of the Hill match doesn't mean, you know, can't play even. So he played me 100 to 70, and I'll tell you exactly what happened. It's pretty, pretty amazing because it's just the way it went. Played 170 for $50. Uh, he broke the balls. I run 70 and out. I broke the balls, he ran 100 and out. Uh, I broke the balls again, he ran 100 and out again. That's exactly how the match got, went. 70, 100, yeah. and 100. And I said, that's enough. <laughs> I, I quit that night, and I said, that's all, that's all for tonight, you know. And uh, next time I seen him, he called me Young Hoppy. He says, Young Hoppy, you know, he called me. And yeah. then we used, to, we used to play a lot. And that's how I had my nickname from there on in, you know. And... There's an urban legend about your stroke, and that is that it, it's the genesis of your stroke is that you have such a short backstroke and you, you push the cue forward because when you learn to play pool as a child, you learned in a basement room where the walls were too close to the table for you to take a backstroke. Is that the truth? That's that's big part of it, yes. Um, when I had a table... Uh, our house was kind of small, especially the basement, and the table was only a seven-footer, but the basement was so small, you really couldn't, you had to use a short stick most of the time. Well, I didn't like to shoot with a short stick, so I would just use my stick and just put it down and basically pull back and go through the ball. And um, that's basically how my, my stroke got developed. Um, but it's funny um, to talk about my stroke because, you know, basically the stroke is fallen through the cue ball. That's uh, the most important part of the of your stroke, basically. And we had 
in Steve Miserak's pool room. We were together one day, and I was standing around, and Miserak was there, and a fella by the name of Tom Jennings. I don't know if he's around anymore. I, I heard he passed away, but he was a very yes, good player, top player. And he had a beautiful stroke, nice, long, fancy stroke. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Spanky. Spanky was his name. It was Spanky was a, a local player, but he had a really good draw stroke. Okay. So we had we had a contest for 25 hours a man. We set a ball up down by the spot, the other end of the table, to put the cue ball back behind the other spot, and you had to make the ball and draw back as far as you could. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you got two tries, and we did it for 25 hours. And you know who won that, right? I won that. You did. <laughs> okay, yeah. So you mean as far as you know, talking about a stroke, um, there's nothing wrong with my stroke. It, it looks different. It's a little different than most people. But if you look at a lot of players' strokes, they all have their own unique way of stroking. Uh, first time I seen uh, Ephraim Reyes and Bustamani stroking a ball, I said, "My God, so how are they going to hit the cue ball? Because there there's right. cues all over the place." Okay. Uh, and then you look at a fellow like Ralph Suke who has a beautiful straight stroke. You know, uh, and Steve Miserak had a, had a, had a wonderful-looking stroke. And then you take great players like Larry Lascotti, who had a short stroke, was a great player, okay, a uh, straight pool player. You see, in straight pool, there's not really much you have to do with the cue ball if you're always in line. <laughs> you don't have to do that much. So I think now today you see a lot of players with these with these long strokes stuff playing nine ball, um, where the cue ball is always moving around the table and you're always executing one end of the table to the next and drawing the ball. Uh, Anytime, you know, somebody wants to have a draw contest, they think they can draw it a lot farther than me. You know, I'm willing to play. <laughs> I'm willing to give it a try with them. You know what I mean? Because I can draw the ball back as far as I have to. <laughs> so I, I always get a kick out of that because it, it was a great instrument on the road, I can tell you that. When I was on the road playing, um, I traveled with a few different players, and a couple players I traveled had a beautiful-looking stroke. So we'd go into a place, you know, we were practicing or something, you know, uh, I would I would usually most of the time get challenged instead of the other guy because of my stroke. But then after they played me for a little while, then they wanted to play the other guy. <laughs> they wanted to play my partner. <laughs> well, so, uh, <clears throat> kind of funny. Mike, we are coming to the end of our time. Do you have anything that you wanted to uh, interject here? Well, Alan, I know that this interview is about your career as a player, but. I did want to ask you real quick how the uh, million-dollar shootout was coming along. I, we talked about that a month or so ago and just wanted to see what it, uh, what's happened since then. Well, it's, it's really coming along well. I've got uh, about 80 players signed up with intent to play in it. Um, and if it keeps going, I mean, I'll be happy with 100 players the first year. That'll be half a million dollars. And it's, um, excuse me, it's, it's probably going to be more money the players will play play for for a long time because you know there's not big money in the game right now. But my whole idea about this kind of tournament uh, is to help the players to make some money that are ranked in the top like 32. Uh, the top 32 players have to be able to make a living. If they can't make a living playing pool, I mean, what's going to happen? They're going to get jobs, and they're really not going to win all the titles and and win the tournaments they should if they can't devote most of their time to playing pool. Um, so what I want to do is try to get these tournaments going, try to get maybe six to eight of them uh, within three years. Uh, and if I can, if I can get six to eight of these tournaments within three years, the top 32, okay, can make 100000 a year, guaranteed, top 32 players, if these tournaments can take off. 
I think that's the part they're missing that they don't understand. That's why I started this. These tournaments with 25000 added and 50000 they're bogus. They're nothing. They're, they're, it's just added money with a small entrance fee. There's still no yeah. real prize money into it. Follow me? Because the, yes. the, big, the big majority of that money is going to first, second prize. You know, so the, the players aren't making any money. So the players have to play in big tournaments. And they did this in golf years ago, too, if you remember. Years ago, golf had a small first prize, but they had a lot of money going down the line. You know, each player, the difference between, like, different places was like $100, $200. Yeah. Okay? And this is kind of like what, you know, the players want to do with the pool players so where they can make, you know, once they reach the top 32, if there's 100 players, the top 32. If there's 200 players, then it'd be the top 64. Okay? So it depends how many players you get going in this, you know. But they will have a chance to make some money for real. I mean, it's got me... I'm excited. I'm practicing every day, you know, and I'm going to tournaments now because I want to play. I mean, I want a chance to play in this. Uh, I'm going to play in it, and um, I'm looking forward to playing in it. And I think that it will help the, the players a lot when they see when they see what can happen and what's going to what goes on. And you know, there's another thing about this. This generates interest in pool rooms all over the place. It uh, gets the pool rooms to run tournaments and have things and promote pool in the pool rooms because now your local player or a kid that plays locally, that plays really well, like, for instance, when I was younger, 15 years old, something like this would have been great for me. I can go and qualify in a huge tournament for $5, for $5 right. going down the ladder. Uh, kind of like years ago, I don't know if you remember, Jerry, you might remember the Miller Lite tournament that they had years ago where you went to sure. different taverns. Sure. You went to the taverns yeah. and you qualified and you got in the tournament. Right. Something like that. It's exactly like that. So you could actually, that Miller Lite tournament was like 25000 first prize. Mm-hmm. So you could, you could win, you could get in that tournament, win that 25000 for like playing in these barroom tournaments for like $10 or $5. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's kind of like something what I want to do with the pool rooms. Uh, pool rooms and the clubs, whoever wants to do it, even leagues can get involved with it. Want to, let's get the players to qualify. Uh, but they don't have to qualify. They can put their, they can put their own money up. They don't have to qualify. Excuse me. Um, they can put their own money up and play in it too, five thousand. But that doesn't make any sense when they got chances to go qualify. If you're a top player, right. why not go qualify? You know, it's not like yeah. poker where you got to get lucky. You know, so yeah. uh, if they qualify for five hours, what if they qualify for five hours and get in and win it? I mean, that's got to be the, one of the greatest things of all time. You know, <laughs> and there's no sure. age limit, there's no gender. In other words, you can be man, woman, child, whatever. You want to play in it? Come and play. See if you can win it. You know, I've made the first round really tough to get in toward the money. You know, you have to play 75 games of nine ball. Where have you ever went to a tournament where you were guaranteed to play 75 games? Nowhere. You're guaranteed to play 75 games. If you don't make it to the money round, it's your own fault. And you're going to break the balls 37 times at least. I mean, you got to love it, (laughs) you know. Now, after the first round, you know, depending on how many players I got, it may become a single elimination, race to 11. You know, who knows? But that first round is going to be tough to get past that. And everybody in and the tournament. Have, huh? Do you have a website set up where people can get more info on this? Yes, I do. It's called uh, Million Dollar Nine, number nine, ball.com. Million Dollar Nine Ball.com. Very good. And it shows the qualifiers where they're, where they're scheduled around the, not around the country, as a matter of fact, all over the world. They have, they're having qualifiers in uh, Sweden and Germany, uh, England. Uh, France, they're going on all over the place. 
So hopefully, you know, if this catches on, I mean, it could help. It could help players to make some money. <laughs> you know, like poker players have made money. Pool players maybe have a chance to make some money. Well, Alan, that's great. Congratulations and good luck with that. But Thanks, most sir. of all, just great congratulations on your uh, coming induction into the Hall of Fame. We'll look forward to seeing you there in Charlotte. Uh, you certainly deserve it, and you have for years. Well, thanks a lot, Jerry. All those years now playing pool, I was telling my son, all those years I've played pool and practiced and went away, and, you know, I uh, I don't know if one of the few players could say I actually made a living playing pool for like 12 to 14 years where all I did was right. play pool uh, and, and, you know, survived. In other words, and uh, had a wife and kid and everything back then, so uh, made it. <laughs> Yes, and indeed. I did it, I did it on the square, Jerry. Everything was on the square, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, I do. It was uh it was kind of a good feat and I know I know I know enough about this game to be there, so it's not like no fluke. You know what I mean, Jerry? No, it's not. <laughs> so Well Alan, thanks very much for your time and we will see you in Charlotte. Now okay. have a great rest of the day. Thank you very much. Thanks, thanks Jerry. Alan. Thank you, Mike. Okay, bye bye. Well, Two pretty dynamic guests there, Mike. Uh, nice to talk to the fellows who are going to be going into the Hall of Fame here in just a very few short weeks. Yeah, you know, Alan has been referred to as the hardest working man in the business, and boy, you can sure see why as many times as that cell phone rang while we were talking to him. <laughs> yeah, there are a few people that are always trying to get in touch with Alan. But uh, I'm looking forward to this million-dollar tournament he's going to have. That's uh that's going to be exciting. Yeah, that should be interesting. And you know, when we were talking to Pat, I think there's a, I think there's an interesting, almost moral to, to the story of of AccuStats. I mean, Pat didn't really know what he was going to do. I mean, certainly in the beginning, he didn't think that he was going to have the setup that he has now, but he worked hard at it and. He took advantage of opportunities that were presented to him, and look at where he is today. I mean, it's a great story. He's a great example of finding a dream and following it and succeeding at it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Although I did, I found it interesting. He said that uh, it'd be pretty easy to get a, a race to three on tape as perfect pool. He hasn't watched any of you and I's challenge matches, has he? No, he hasn't, and we're not going to invite him to. <laughs> All right, well, Mike, you and I, of course, are off to uh, Fujara in the United Arab Emirates. We're going to be flying into the airport in Dubai and then taking private cars down to the World 8-Ball. So, uh, folks, do tune in to AZB-TV for our daily reports from the World 8-Ball Championship, and we'll keep you up to date with everything that's going on there. And for now, I'm Jerry Forsyth, and for Mike Howerton, you guys have a good day.